This is the fifth in our series of conversations with GOP candidates for Tennessee's 5th Congressional District. Today, we talk to Kurt Winstead, otherwise known on the campaign trail as the General. Enjoy. Sitting here with Kurt Winstead, GOP candidate for Tennessee's 5th Congressional District. Kurt, how are you doing today? I am doing great, and I appreciate you uh, having me in today. Thank you. Of course. You. Of course. Well, uh, you know, we're here to talk about you running for office, obviously. So to start, what what drew you to run for Congress in the 5th District? Well, uh, the short answer is, um, I think after the last couple of years we've been through that the constituents of the 5th Congressional District are looking for a conservative um, leader to represent them that wants to go to Washington, D.C. and solve problems, actually, uh, actually do mm-hmm. something. And um, I've been serving uh, basically my entire adult life uh, through the military, et cetera, and in the community. And um, I just, I mean, I just didn't want to kind of sit idly by and uh, watch what was going on in D.C. at the current time and not be able to stand up and say, hey, I did something about this. And so uh, that inspired me to get involved. Uh, I wanted to get involved and I have a, um, have a pretty good fire in my belly right now for continuing that service, uh, that kind of service, uh, over self attitude. So what, what were you doing before you decided to run? Um, I've been a practicing attorney here in Nashville for 35 years. Uh, I also have been in the Tennessee national guard since 1990. Uh, I got in when, um, when the Gulf war was starting, right? When Saddam Hussein wasn't, invading Kuwait okay. and uh, for my I time wanted, I wanted to join uh, it was kind of my wife thought it was a little crazy because I was 30 years old and uh, my wife was six months pregnant with her first child and here I am going to join the army mm-hmm. and uh, I got into Tennessee National Guard stayed in until uh, February of last year January February of last year when I retired after 30 plus years uh, I was fortunate I retired as a brigadier general um, I spent my last four years as director of the Joint Staff in the Tennessee National Guard. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that service that I spoke about earlier, that was kind of uh, ingrained in me uh, for you know, over 30 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when I got out, uh, uh, I've always been involved in my community on boards and commissions and uh, any, any, any type of nonprofit I could get involved. I love that. I love giving back to the community. And so I was doing that. I was still practicing law. And then all of a sudden I wasn't in the military and I was like, man, I, I still want to serve my country. I've served my state, served my community. And so I've never run for office before. This sure. is the first time, never, never been in politics, never run for office. And so this gave me an opportunity when they were drawing, they were redrawing the lines. If you recall, uh, they weren't finished until January of this year, right? but they were talking about them in the fall. And so in the fall, I got some encouragement uh, from friends and from people that were in the political world that said, hey, you really need to look at this. I mean, you've got uh, you've been serving your community and your state for a long time. And and I know you still got a lot that you want to do. And this would be a great opportunity. So think about it. Um, I thought about it. I talked to my wife about it. I talked to my friends about it. I prayed about it. And then I talked to my enemies about it because you're going to see in them a lot. Oh, yeah. And through that, I just wanted to make the decision that if I'm getting in this, I'm going to get into it 100%. I didn't want to go halfway. It's just kind of the way I'm wired. Of course. And so I, I decided I'm engaged. I'm ready to get in it. Do you, do you find that a lot of veterans after they're done serving are drawn to politics? It seems it seems to be somewhat of a trend. The service, you know, you've mm-hmm. served in the military. You're drawn to serve in politics. Mm-hmm. That's the natural next kind of progression, I guess. Well, I believe that, uh, I wish we had more veterans, uh, in politics because, uh, veterans usually, uh, uh, 
overwhelmingly uh, want to serve. Right. And, uh, you know, the politics part, I, I really like the word representative because that, I believe that's what a congressman should be, mm-hmm. is a representative of his constituents uh, or her constituents. The um, uh, you're, it's not a, you're not on a platform by yourself. I mean, you're actually representing everyone that's in your, in your community. And that's sometimes that's tough because it's, it's very diverse views, very diverse, uh, uh, ideas. Uh, but you're trying to make the best of it. You're trying, you're trying to take, uh, it's a, it's a democratic Republic where you're elected, but you're elected to represent the people, not elected to go off and just do your own thing. Sure. Okay. You represent the people and the military mindset. That's the way you think too. You're there to complete the mission. Uh, and the mission is that whatever the objective is to do, and when you're elected to Congress, the mission is to represent the people, go do the best you can for your constituents. Of course. So that mindset works very well uh, in that. And uh, and probably one of the common threads that run through it is you are totally dedicated to your country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's definitely a lot of crossover there. Yeah. I think Jeff Byerline's the only other veteran running in this yeah. race right now. He is, he is. Um, and okay, well, what what were some of the kind of the, the animating issues, I guess, for you? Some, some, uh, you know, planks of your platform, I suppose, that were motivated you. Okay. Uh, well, first of all, I'll go back to what I just said. That's a, a kind of selfless service, right? Service over self. That's an important part of me, and that's an important part of my platform, of course, to make sure I'm representing the people. Um, three other points, and, I, and I've, I've I've unveiled this in what I'm calling uh, 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 the strong American uh, American families plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that encompasses a lot of things, but the three parts to it are very important. One is to uh, kind of get control of the budget and inflation that's going on right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you know, that uh, we're having tons of problems with our with inflation. When you spend, overspend money that you don't have, or you start, you know, uh, just printing money and sending it out to the public, um, you're going to have a problem. And then when you constrict the supply chain side. Uh, that is definitely the definition of inflation right there. So we've got to get control of that. Uh, and some opportunities we have to do that is to, uh, you know, we could go in uh, one and we could cut all federal uh, departments and uh, agencies, you know, by five to seven percent right off the bat. Just say, hey, you've got to cut your uh, program by this much and you figure out how to do it. And I think the federal government in particular is is a, a little too fat anyway. Right. So you can, they can carve back pretty quickly. I saw a stat recently that said that there were 5,600 unelected, uh, you know, workers, government workers in D.C. for every elected official. That sounds, and that, that was, that was right. back in Nixon's era, too. So yeah. it's probably even worse it, now. It, yeah, it's, it, it's probably it is worse now. And it's um, it's something that is tangible that you can fix. You know, it's, right. you can look at it, see it and fix it. It's not something pot in the sky. You can actually do that. Of course, uh, you can you can make those uh, changes. And I think. I think just a little off here in a second, but I think that during the COVID, uh, when that was going on uh, and it's tied in the 2020, you know, the, the, the liberal Democrats started using that as a way to get control and kind of take over the spending spree. Yeah, and right. I, and I thoroughly believe that after this uh, election in the fall, that the Republicans are going to take back the House mm-hmm. without a doubt. I hope to be the fifth district Republican that does that. But then when that happens, I mean, the Pelosi uh, spending party is over. Okay. Yeah, we're, yeah. We're, gonna, we're gonna go choke that down pretty quickly. Let's hope so, so I'm excited about that. So going back to the other planks that were important to me, also part of the spending 
is uh, you've got to you've got to cut back and hopefully get rid of this pork barrel spending where you have special projects for uh, congressmen trying to you know get special projects in something kind of silly you know finding out the uh, uh, the travel pattern of gnats or whatever it is uh, I <laughs> right. can't, I'm just making that up but that's a, that's my point uh, and now the second part is is kind of uh, keeping American families safe uh, for example. Um, we could, if, if we spent about, I think we spent $40 billion in one of the uh, uh, grants, uh, money grants we made to Ukraine. I believe that was the figure. Right. Yeah. And if we'd have taken about $22, 24000000000 billion of that and uh, spent it on America, we could have actually uh, could have put a resource uh, officer in every school in the country. Yep. And that would have been a great way to put, to, to make our kids safer. And also to put America first, which mm-hmm. is a, which is a line that I'm using a lot because that's the way you do put you know put America first. Of course. Um, and then the the second part of keeping our um, uh, making our families safer is the border, the Mexican border, the southern border. Uh, it's uh, we're we're just a step away from that being totally open, and we have got to get control of that. Got to get Biden's administration and his and his uh, uh, policies. Just uh, we we've got to cut them off. I mean, we cannot we cannot continue this. Right. Um, we have. Uh, you know, the wall, completing the wall will be extremely helpful. And I'm saying this because I just went down there a few weeks ago mm-hmm. and I saw it firsthand. And um, there's a bunch of the Trump wall laying on the ground that's already been paid for. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the materials, labor already been paid for. And it's just laying there. We haven't even completed it. And it does help. It does work. Right. Now, I met a guy. It's better than nothing. It's better than nothing. And there's there's a couple more parts to it. And one of them is that we also need to give resources to the Border Patrol. They are, they are, they are, they're working very thin right now. Right. They don't have enough resources nor enough people to do their job well. So they have to rely on uh, deputy sheriffs from local counties and, and their deputies. And they also have to rely on the National Guard in some, some cases. And those those they do a great job right. to help, but it's not like the job that the Border Patrol could do. So we need to get those resources. Now, I was down there and saw um, Joe Sheriff Joe Frank uh, Martinez, and he's lived there. I mean, he's lived there in his entire life. He kept referring to everything we went to as his home, as opposed to the border or his house. Or right. Is his home? Sure. You know, when somebody says that, that means a lot to him. And so this uh, this this guy was incredible. We got to go with these deputies out and about. We got to see just the problems. I mean, you've got you got ranchers that have their livestock uh, uh, and their crops ravaged because of the people coming across the border illegally. Now we're you know we're a country of immigrants. I mean, but every immigrant that I know talks about how they want the illegals to stop because they did it the right way and they want them to have to do it the right way. Yeah. Yeah. It's costing us money. It's costing us. It's hurting our economy big time. But one thing that we are feeling right here in Tennessee, and you see it every day is that the drug problem and the fentanyl problem that's coming across the border, it's directly related and directly traced back to the the Southern border. And then it's traced back from there to China. So we've got all kinds of issues, but we were talking to a deputy sheriff out in Wilson County the other day. And he was telling us that 44 people in Wilson County have overdosed with fentanyl since January. Wow. So, I mean, it's, 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 people say, oh, the, the border's a thousand miles away. Yeah. But yeah. The effect of an open border is right here in our backyard. Of course. And so that's, that's a problem. So that's another way to make our America safe. And I also add one part. When we were down there, we were driving down um, the, in the deputy sheriff's truck, and he was just showing us very isolated areas that, mm-hmm. that the illegal immigrants try to come across. And this is where the humanitarian crisis comes in. Because we saw uh, six figures walking toward us. I thought it was, I noticed that four were uh, uh, 
children and two were adults, but I couldn't tell men, women, whatever. As they got closer, it was two men. Mm-hmm. And they were what you call coyotes. They were bringing children across for uh, across the border for a cost. Right. And as soon as they saw that deputy's uh, truck, they ran. They left those kids there. Now, the deputy and the border agent saved the kids, seven, six, four, and one-and-a-half-year-old. Wow. 106 degrees when this happened. Now, that's a humanitarian crisis right there. He, we saved the kids. He got the kids. We didn't. I watched him do it. He got them. They were, they were uh, dehydrated, obviously. And uh, they ultimately got them to safety. But the point of this is, I asked him, and I said, what would have happened if we had not have driven up on that and just saw that today? You know, we just hadn't been back here. Of course. I mean, what, I mean he was showing us around. He was doing us a favor. And he said, uh, exactly what you think would happen, uh, that uh, they would have probably gotten under some brush to keep cool. And um, unfortunately, probably never seen or heard of them uh, yeah. anymore after that. So that's a humanitarian crisis. Right. And that's when you have an open border like that, that's what happens. They, they get drawn, they get incentivized to try to come across, and it leads to those type of situations. Of course. So we can stop that. Um, I mean, we can help the humanitarian crisis by stopping that kind of process. So, yeah. It seems, seems that disincentivizing it would be a good step of the way to, I agree. to solving that. Yeah, I agree 100%. And the last thing on the platform side obviously is uh, is energy independence i mean that's that's uh that's uh, everybody's thinking about that right now we're having some you know we're america is very dependent on the rest of the world and we're the greatest country in the world mm-hmm. uh and we're not a net exporter that's ridiculous yeah, I mean, yeah we have got to lead and not follow and not let the we can't be the the tail wagging the dog of course uh you know the the, the keystone xl pipeline you know needs to be you know finished we need to do the we need to open up the uh uh, the drilling across the country on leases, uh, the lease land that the Biden administration is, put, is putting a quietus on it, for lack mm-hmm. of a better term. They stopped it. And then, uh, you know, off- offshore dr- drilling. I mean, this stuff can be done safely. That's not the problem. Right. We need, to, we need to be energy independent so we can lead in the rest of the world and not be dependent on the rest of the world. I mean, right now, Russia is exporting oil more than we are. Yeah. And getting paid for it. Right. I mean, it's crazy if you think about that. German, you know? I was looking at Germany's energy prices this morning. They're up six times what they were exactly. earlier this year. Exactly. So those, if you're looking for platform information, those are the three things along with uh, service over self that uh, makes the four planks of my platform. Great. Great. Okay. Well, I've got these five questions yeah, sure. ready and we'll just start rolling these out. What is the uh, what is the greatest threat to Tennessee's ability to govern itself? Kind of a states' right question. What is the greatest threat to states' ability to make their own decisions? Uh, federal government. <laughs> I mean, but it's plain and simple. Federal government. Now, I'm a huge states' rights fan. Right. Uh, the Tenth Amendment is uh, one of my favorite amendments, uh, just because it does give the. You know, it says if it's not in the Constitution, and I think you've seen this uh, a lot come out in the last uh, week. Uh, of decisions that are coming out of the Supreme Court. Right. Regardless of the outcome of those decisions, they, they have been made on constitutional uh, values and constitutional tenets. And that's mm-hmm. been important because the three, um, the three uh, justices that uh, President Trump put on the bench uh, were constitutionalists. And right. They read the constitutionalists. And, and, uh, and I think you're, if you read them and listen to why the, the rationale of those decisions, you'll see that they're reading the Constitution and abiding by it. Of course. And that is very, very important. So um, going back to your question about, you know, what's, I mean, the federal government is way too much in our lives. 
Right. Uh, okay. I mean, the more we can, and that's what in Congress you can do is you can pull back uh, the tentacles of the federal government out of out of our life. Uh, uh, you know, a lot of it. Uh, some of it's necessary. They they put together our uh, armed forces. Obviously, mm-hmm. that's something you know they give us national security. Those are important. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying the unnecessary. Uh, powers that the federal government kind of takes over and then when they get in it just seems like it's like it's like pouring water in, in, in little cracks and crevices in the floor it just goes everywhere and it's everywhere and you can't get it yeah, out yeah yeah and so you want so that, that i think the federal government is probably the biggest threat uh and, you know, and that's originally when we go back to the second amendment you know we have the second amendment the right to keep and bear arms that shall not be infringed that was put in the constitution of course to protect ourselves from our own government right so it, you know, it, it's coming back around, but that, that would be my answer for sure. That's a, there's so many ways we can do that, but mm-hmm. that's the threat. Kind of, it comes back to you defunding agencies too, talking about that yes. because yeah. it, it seems like a lot of the in. way federal government tries to get its tentacles in is through mandates done through federal agencies like yeah. OSHA would be an example. Exactly. Or, well, I mean like the, the United States department of education. Yeah. I mean, that, yes. Education in and of itself needs to be at the lowest level. Right. I mean, federal government doesn't need to get in between parents and their kids when it comes to education or anything. And uh, so that's a that's a big part of it. That, those are just two great examples. Well, that transitions us well to our next question, which is what is the biggest threat to pr- parents' ability to manage their children's education? Which, yeah. I mean, you kind of That's it. it. I just said, yeah, I mean, education needs to be at the lowest level. Right. I mean, uh, listen, you're sitting here. I'm sitting here. We both love Tennessee. We wouldn't be here. We grew up here. We love it. I love everything. I raised my, married my wife from here, raised my kids here, two daughters. I mean, this, this Tennessee is a great place. Of course. Couldn't think, agree more. I think we can manage our education system. Yeah. You know? And our education system here and maybe the one in Washington or California or New York or wherever might be a little different, you know, because, I mean, we, we know best. I think the local government and the local uh, people and especially the parents know best of what's what, uh, the best thing for their kids when it comes to education. Of course. So. Great. Uh, you kind of already addressed this earlier, but I'll ask it again. What is the most immediate step you can take as a congressman to ease inflation concerns? So I guess we'll reframe it and say, what's the first thing that you would do to get a handle on inflation? Yeah. Well, the first thing is try to uh, strangle uh, the uh, the Biden administration for the next two years to keep them from spending money, useless money for right. sure. Uh, but they're just, they're, I mean, for example, you can't go back and pay people money not to work and expect them then to work when those payments stop. Yeah. Okay. That's not the way it works. Some people don't understand that, no. but you're right. <laughs> Tennessee, people of Tennessee, uh, and I've been throughout six counties in this district. Okay. And I, uh, you know, and I grew up up in East Tennessee. So I, I you know, was up there by my, my, the Hawkins County is where I grew up. And there's one thing, there's a common thread throughout Tennessee. People of Tennessee like to work uh, an honest day for an honest dollar. Mm-hmm. And there's no question about that. They're proud of that. Right. I mean, the Tennesseans are proud. They don't mind working. They don't mind hard work. And sometimes they are disillusioned when people try to give them something. I don't want that. I want to earn it. Of course. And that's, that's exactly the way probably you feel. I know I feel. Yep. And most of the Tennesseans are like that. Very conservative, very straightforward. You know, I just want to keep my family safe. I want to be able to worship, you know, and practice my faith. And I want to be able to have a good job. Of course. What, what's wrong with that? That's great. That's that's why to me that's what America is all about. Those opportunities to do that. No guarantees, but opportunities. Right. And so I believe that if uh, if you can minimize the uh, effect and the uh, uh, 
the reach of federal government, that those types of values right there will be practiced a lot more in Tennessee. Spe- specifically on the spending front. Yeah. The- take, take care of the spending. It, it just two things right off the bat. Uh, you could introduce legislation to do across the board 5 to 7%. Uh, decrease in federal departments and agencies. That right. would be one thing. And also uh, uh, curtail the uh, pork belly special project spending that we see a lot of. Those are two things you could do day one. Yeah. You could put in legislation day one to do that. Great. Next next question. Over the next year, how should the U.S. approach Russia, Ukraine? Uh, well, that's, that, that's a complicated question, but like you heard before, uh, I said we should have used a lot of that money that we used on the Ukraine right. in, in our own country for America first. Of course. Uh, accountability is huge. I mean, uh, you know, we're all uh, – Americans are, have big hearts, and they're going to be – they're going to protect uh, the people that can't protect themselves, and humanitarian, humanitarian part of it is going to be important. Uh, but we got to have some accountability. When we spend the money or give the projects, we have to have accountability of how it's being used. Right. We don't want to put boots on the ground there. Uh, Americans and being from a military background, definitely we don't want to do that. We have to protect our NATO allies that that uh, buttress up right there to the Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I will give you a little bit of example. Deterrence is huge. Having deterrence effect uh, is huge on somebody like Russia. Right. Uh, we have a superior military by a long a long shot over Russia, uh, but we we want to use deterrence before we use anything else. And um, during the um, Obama-Biden administration, you saw uh, Russia invade Ukraine right. in, the, in, in the Crimea Peninsula part there. President Trump comes into office, nothing happens. Of course. President Trump goes out of office, unfortunately, and then all of a sudden they, they attack again. So right. what does that tell you? That, that the, the you know, Republican strength, the Republican tenets of, of, uh, of deterrence and national security and America first help to keep those types of things from happening. Of course. So uh, that's one thing you do is get back the deterrence effect and then also make sure you're taking care of accountability. I mean, we've, we've, if you're the world leader, you have to do things around the world sometimes that are tough, you may not like, you don't want to stay in them that long, but you want to make sure that when you're doing them, that they're protecting America first throughout. Okay? Of course. You're not just doing it just to throw your money away or whatever. But if it's something that can put, push America forward, we'll do it. Great. Last question. What do you think most undermines trust in the voting process? Well, we need, uh, you know, election integrity was damaged very heavily in the 2020 uh, presidential elections. Uh, I mean, we, you, we, you saw it with your own eyes. I saw it with my own eyes. We just, you know, you wake up the day of after the election, and you go, right. what? And, and you start seeing the, there were states like Pennsylvania, I think, was kind of Pennsylvania it. was the one with the weird graph. Yeah, that, yeah. It was just thumbing its nose at the yeah, election integrity. Seemed to be. There was, there was just problems, and it was just, I mean, it made your, it made your stomach turn because a, a, a democratic republic and a democracy, I mean, the core of that is election. Is right, election. of course. Uh, uh, elections across the country are so, I mean, you got you have to have election integrity or you lose your faith yeah. in what you're doing. We pride ourselves that every citizen gets a vote. Okay. So what, you know, if every citizen gets a vote, why can't we just have voter ID? So every citizen can confirm that that's who they are and they get that one vote. Of course. Because why should one citizen get one vote and somebody else get mm, multiple Sure, <laughs> for lack of a better turd? And that's not fair. Right. Uh, so we have to ensure that we have, very strong election integrity. Election integrity should stay at the state level. I do believe that. Right. But we could have a national a voter ID. So we make sure that the person casting the vote is the person that should be casting the vote. And then we'll get uh, the the um, 
the, the strength that we've always felt in our election system. Because one thing when we go around the world, I was actually in Iraq the year they had their first free election. Right. And you talk about seeing some pride. They had no idea what they were doing. They sure. said, what is this? This is great. We get to vote for who leads us. It's, uh-huh. it's crazy. But they'd never had that before. We have had that our entire life. As long as America's been in existence since the 1700s, we've had that, enjoyed that. And you, me, and everybody else we know, we get to walk around every day thinking it's great. We can't let that be eroded. Of course. Okay, so election integrity is huge. And I, that's something that I will fight for because it's the it's kind of the core and the, the, the spine of our democracy. We do take it for granted. I mean, I know my, you don't even think it's just it's gravity as far you as you just you're think concerned. it happens. You can't conceive of mm-hmm. anything outside yep. of being able to vote. That's yeah. a good point. No, I, it is. It is. Yeah. It, it, could you imagine saying, OK, you can't vote anymore? You say, well, whoa, whoa. I mean, you know, yeah. you, you can read about it, but you can't you won't understand the experience of it. Just being like, well, this is your, you know, this is the next sure. emperor, whatever. Exactly. It's exactly. A- You're part. Of, and that's what the Iraqis saw. They only knew what, what they only knew dictators. Right. Now, if it's a benevolent dictator, everything's great, but it was somebody like Saddam Hussein. It was not. Of course. And, uh, and so for them to experience that and to be there and see that, uh, I think I started, I started probably appreciating uh, you know, you just take it for granted, like you said. Yeah, I yeah. appreciated it more because I saw people go, "Oh my gosh, this is the first." I mean, I'm whatever they are. I'm 50 years old, and I've never done this, and what a great feeling! Yeah, it is uh, a pretty radical thing, honestly. If you think for about us, it. it's not. For it's us, not radi- it's not. Well, yeah. it was even you know even at maybe its origins, it was. It's, but. it's the. I mean, it's it's at the core of our democracy for sure. And yeah. uh, keeping the essence of uh, of uh, election integrity is is paramount. Of course. Well, Kurt, that's all I got. Thank you so much for coming by. Uh, you've got a campaign website? Yes, I do. It's kurtwinstead.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can go to that website, find out whatever we're doing. We're on social media. Um, uh, we try to get stuff out every day. We try to show up at every event. We're going to be all across. The, we'll be canvassing the six counties over the next, oh, we got about uh, just a little over 30 days uh, before yeah. the election. So a lot of this stuff going on. Anytime you see us out and about, please come by. Love to talk to you. Love to shake your hand, look in your eye, and ask for your vote. I Great. really would. I appreciate that. Kurt Winstead. Dot com. Great. Well, we'll put that website in the show notes, and we're recording this the weekend before 4th of July. So have a great weekend. Um, thanks for listening.